Welcome to Menno HealthCast, a joint production of Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship in Anabaptist World. Today, I invite you to listen in as I speak with Bill Swartley, a nurse anesthetist working in Salina, Kansas. For the past 25 plus years, Bill has traveled to multiple countries, including the Dominican Republic, Peru, Ecuador, Iraq, Kenya, Cameroon, and Senegal for medical missions with several organizations, including Mercy Ships and Medical Ministry International. He recently returned from a trip to Ecuador. Bill, I'm glad that we're able to speak together today. Thank you for making the time. Well, thank you. I'm very honored to to be invited to speak today. I know that you recently returned from a trip. Can you tell me about that trip? Sure. Um, yes, I just recently come back, came back from a one-week trip to a small village on the west coast of Ecuador, a town called Santa Elena. And the one thing that we learned there was that many of their patients have waited literally for years for needed surgeries, especially for hysterectomies and cholecystectomies. Our team was invited to come to this community by the local medical community, and we were able to provide care and surgeries for about 50 or so people. We did several colostomy reversals also. Patients who had been treated for colon cancer or other colon obstructive conditions years ago, but are now cured, but have never had the opportunity to have their colonoscopies reversed. There were certainly some challenges at this place with limited or unavailable medications, such as beta blockers and insulin and other medications and supplies. This town actually has a pretty good hospital with medical professionals, but they seem to have little incentive to treat or care for patients, especially for the indigent, or really anyone who doesn't have an emergent condition. Seem to be quite a few specialists here, and they do some, some obstetrics and some general surgery, but in the whole hospital, they had one glucometer. And when we were there, they only had one remaining glucose stick. They could check one, one blood sugar and one vial of insulin with about two cc's in it. They have a very limited supply of vasoactive drugs such as beta blockers and antihypertensive. You know, so there were some challenges, but we, we did a lot of work. We worked hard for uh, five days there. What makes it so hard to get supplies in this town? You know, I'm not sure. Um, the, the hospitals in Ecuador and many other sort of lower income countries are usually supported by the government of the country. So there's a resistance to spending a lot of money at a lot of times at these hospitals. There are private clinics in many of these towns. And if you can afford to pay for, you can get very good care if you can afford to pay for it. But for those folks who don't have the ability to pay, they simply are at the the mercy of the local medical community. Interesting that you said there were so many specialists, but not a lot of, is that to infer that there weren't a lot of primary care physicians? Well, I think there were primary care physicians. This hospital happened to be a sort of a a regional referral center. So because of that, they had uh, more specialists than most of the other medical uh, facilities that I've visited. I'm not exactly sure why they're not motivated to to do a little bit more work. Maybe they just simply don't have the supplies. I'm not sure. For our listeners, I just want to clarify what a colostomy reversal is. A colostomy is when your bowel comes to the outside of your stomach. And so somebody would wear a bag to collect their poop, for better word. And so this is a life-changing surgery for patients after colon cancer or whatever to be able to return to normal bowel function. 
I imagine that the patients were very grateful to have that surgery. I'm sure they were very grateful. Some of them had their colostomies for 10, 10 years or longer, which is really kind of rare in someone who hasn't uh, who has a potentially aversible procedure. And then the resistance to treating the indigent, do you feel like that was a financial resistance? Just not a lot of money to be had in taking care of the indigent population? Well, I think many hospitals in the, in the resource poor countries primarily serve as emergency centers. So nothing is, nothing is necessarily managed unless they're in real trouble. And I'm not sure if that's the case at this hospital. I, we weren't there long enough for me to get a sense of that. But I know that in other places where I've worked in the past, that has been the case. So you only go to the hospital if you're really in trouble. And there's not a lot of preventive care that happens in many of these places. You've done some research about the anesthesia coverage in resource-poor countries. What have been some of your findings about that? There's an extensive research and publication about those kinds of issues. The WHO, the World Health Organization, has recently reported that half of the world's population cannot obtain essential healthcare services. And uh, one of the things that these trips have made me aware of is the lack of safe anesthesia coverage, um, especially in resource poor countries, and not only anesthesia coverage, but just general healthcare. For example, it's estimated that in 2016, over 300,000 mothers died of pregnancy-related complications, 99% of those in low-income countries. And the lack of qualified healthcare providers, including anesthesia providers, contributes in large part to these deaths. Also in 2016, various sources that I've read have reported that every day between 7,000 and 15,000 children die every day from mostly preventable causes. Children under the age of five, for most of them, prematurity is the most frequent cause, but also respiratory infections, birth asphyxia, malaria, congenital deformities, and diarrhea. In Kenya, where I was in May, we were told that in 2020, there were 673 maternal deaths per 100,000 births per year, and a very high infant mortality rate as well. In the United States, I think the infant mortality rates like maybe five or so deaths per 100,000 and the maternal death rate may be around 17 per 100,000. I just keep going back to these reports all the time. It just seems impossible to me that in our modern world, there, have, there are so many mostly preventable deaths. There are certainly a few bright spots though too. The 21st century has seen an increase in the number of people who are able to obtain some key health services, such as immunizations and family planning, as well as antiretroviral treatments for HIV. Again, in Kenya, when I was there, I took care of multiple patients who were HIV positive, but really doing pretty well with their antiretroviral treatments. In the villages in Kenya, uh, many people live in their homes or compounds while their husbands work away from home. In the villages, multiple wives are still the norm. And absent husbands have many opportunities for relationships outside their families. One explanation, I believe, for the high rate of HIV in that population. In Kenya, I saw more poverty in the villages than almost any other country I've visited. I said there were some bright spots. Some NGOs have worked to provide insecticide-treated bed nets to prevent malaria. And organizations like Nothing But Nets and Against the Malaria Foundation, UNICEF, and others have provided millions of bed nets and dramatically cut the deaths from malaria. 
I think MCC has also given some bed nets in some countries. Uh, Tedros Cabreas, the uh, Director General of the World Health Organization, recently announced there's also a vaccine now for malaria. So that could be a game changer, for, especially in Africa, where 250,000 people, uh, children, I mean, under the age of five die every year from malaria. As far as anesthesia coverage goes, and I think it was 2016, the HEW adapted an international standard for safe practice of anesthesia and recommended a goal of at least 20 anesthesia providers per 100,000 people. But thus far, only a few countries have achieved that goal, all of them being high income countries. In the United States, I think we have roughly 26 providers per 100,000 for anesthesia. In other countries such as France and Germany, UK, and other first world countries, they have also 20 or more providers per 100,000. But most resource poor countries are not even close to that level. Many countries in Africa have fewer than two providers per 100,000. At last count in Somalia, for example, there were 32 anesthesia nurses, not nurse anesthetists, but anesthesia nurses with varying degrees of training for a population of 15 million. And in the Central African Republic, there are only 25 anesthesia nurses for a population of 5 million. Neither of these countries has even one physician anesthesia provider. Some countries in Central and South America are also very short of anesthesia providers. Some of these countries, there are only physician anesthesia providers, no nurse anesthetists or anesthesia nurses in countries like Peru and Ecuador and a few others. So the lack of adequately trained anesthesia providers in many countries is, is just really pretty dire. The president of Liberia recently contacted the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists, an international organization based in France, to request help in training 400 nurse anesthetists to alleviate the shortage of anesthesia providers in his country. So it's sort of an ongoing issue worldwide. How does anesthesiologists and nurse anesthetists and anesthesia nurses, how do they improve care for the patients? I do think there's an effort by the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and other groups to begin to provide more U.S.-based anesthetists and anesthesia providers to go to these countries on, in a short-term fashion and do some education. And that is happening, beginning to happen more, but it is happening in many countries, especially in countries in Africa. So um, I think we do have a bit of responsibility to sort of export some of our expertise when we can and, and try to help to train some of the people in other countries who, who really are desperate for help. I'm thinking of our listeners who might not know the breadth of the practice of anesthesia providers. We're present on the OB floor. We're present in all the operating rooms. We go to emergency rooms for intubations. We help in code situations when people are emergently dying. We are cross-trained in many different units, and so we can be of assistance in many ways, which we really saw during the COVID pandemic, anesthesia providers going into ICUs, ORs, emergency rooms, and, and doing everything we can to help with care. So we just have this kind of critical care training that allows us to go into these other units as, as necessary, because the operating room does essentially become a critical care unit. You're right. And in fact, during the COVID crisis, there were many nurse anesthetists who were pulled into ICUs and other critical care areas to function as intensivists for something that we're 
really not intensively trained for, but are sort of qualified to do, at least in some limited sense, as nurse anesthetists. Mm -hmm. So not having that particular physician and advanced practitioner training in the CRNA population, that meaning nurse anesthetists, those other countries that don't have the anesthesia providers are missing that whole layer of care providers between the operating room and the floors where we are seen here in the hospitals in the U.S. and other higher income countries where we, we just float in and out and provide that emergency care. Right. Some would also argue that our profession can also set people up for better outcomes post-operatively, so after their surgeries, if we provide the right kind of anesthesia and have the right kind of management in the operating room. No question about that. Absolutely correct. I'm looking forward to reading more about the shortage on a worldwide basis and how we can think about that more as our profession. That's something we talk about daily here in the hospital. I imagine you have some stories of patients that you've encountered on your mission trips. Can you recount them for us? Well, sure. Well, almost every time we go on a short-term trip, there are a case or two which leaves a very deep impression on you and when you talk about when you get home. You know, overall, the medical conditions we see in, on our medical trips are similar to those we see in our own country, although they're often much more advanced. So it's not uncommon to see, for example, a farm worker, a young, healthy farm worker who has had an ingle and a hernia for years, but is still working to support his family because he doesn't really have any choice. Many patients are sort of have poorly controlled hypertension or many Many times we see patients with musculoskeletal issues from um, who are living in labor-intensive societies. One I remember was an 18-year-old young woman who came to see us. She moved very slowly up the stairs to the second floor of the hospital where we were working, stopping along the way to catch her breath. She was visibly very cyanotic and very slight. She looked more like a 10-year-old or something. Her was very small. Her fingers were clubbed and her measured oxygen saturation on room air was in the low 80s. Uh, she had loud heart murmurs and was just chronically short of breath. She certainly had some severe congenital cardiac defect, which unfortunately at her age was probably already untreatable. In the past, a few teams have brought patients back to the United States for cardiac surgery. We have, on my teams, we have never done that. Another was a guy by the name of Eddie, who none of us will ever forget. He presented to us with a draining chest wound he had given us a history of having had an emergency appendectomy about a year prior, and he had a bunch of needle tracks under his clavicle, most likely from attempts to place a central line. We had a surgeon on our team from Salt Lake, a trauma surgeon, Tom White, who was with us on that team. And he called me to the bedside and he said, Bill, we need to do a thoracotomy to drain this empyema or lung infection. I said... <laughs> We have no ventilator. We have no chest tubes. We have no chest bottles. We have no chest instruments. His response was, we are doing a thoracotomy. Okay. We <laughs> so we made a chest tube out of a laryngeal mask airway. We drained his empyema. And Eddie walked out of the hospital about a few days later. It was an amazing thing. Let's fill up the rest of the hour with many stories. But those are two that are unforgettable to me, actually. Yeah, those are amazing stories and that ability to quote unquote MacGyver the medical equipment to fit your needs. That's, that's pretty amazing. What do you feel like when you come home after a missions trip like that? Well, honestly, it's almost a bit of a relief 
to come back to the comfort of the United States. We have so much at our disposal, such good equipment, well-maintained, all the drugs we need to do anesthesia and surgery, supplies, and almost more importantly, the support of the multidisciplines that we can call on if we need help. On a mission trip, it can often be hard to get a chest x-ray or even a 12 lead EKG. Even basic lab work can be difficult. This past week in Ecuador, we had no problem getting CBCs, but the hospital was unable to do any blood chemistries. It's never possible to call a pulmonologist or to consult an internal medicine doc to clear a patient for surgery or anesthesia. You know, we do try to do mostly low-risk cases most of the time. There's plenty of work, and we can never take care of all the patients who need our help, so we really do try to avoid treating high-risk patients. Can you talk about some of the pros and cons of medical missions? Well, our short-term missions, the answer to healthcare shortages in the resource-poor part of the world, it's a great question, and there are no easy answers. You know, since about, I think, 1970, there's just been an explosion of short-term mission trips, some to the United States, but most of them to other countries. Most of them are sponsored by NGOs, and most are faith-based, although even the United States military does short-term mission trips around the world. In 2009, latest statistics I could see, there were roughly two and a half million Americans who volunteered to attend short-term mission trips. That's also including groups who stay here in the States, like Mounted Disaster Service, for example. There are about 600 groups who sponsor trips each year, and those groups spend over $250 million a year and more to fund their own trips. But there's always been questions about the effectiveness of short-term missions. And there have been lots of papers published reporting the failings of short-term missions. Some have reported groups working outside their scope of practice or not coordinating with the local medical authority of the country they're working in, and sometimes leaving local healthcare providers to deal with the late complications of patients they've treated. Some of the critical literature has suggested that medical trips are actually more detrimental than helpful. They list taking jobs from local people, creating dependency on foreign help, or discouraging local initiatives. I think I remember an answer to the little story of a work team that went to build a church in, I think maybe it was Honduras. And as they worked, they noted several men sitting on a hillside watching them. Those men, they were told, had been hired to build the church, but since the church group was doing the work and donating their time, those guys were out of a job. So there can be some unintended consequences. And, you know, for medical teams, there are special considerations. Medical conditions can be very different from those we encounter at home with disease processes well advanced. There can be harmful treatments or misunderstood medical histories from miscommunication or language barriers. Something as simple as high-dose COX-2 inhibitors for post-op pain in patients who have limited water and food intake can expose them to harm. And something you don't always think about in the States. But the acceptance of lower standards in underprivileged settings is never ethically or morally correct. You can't just say it's easier to do something rather than nothing. That's not always the right answer. The short-term frame can also complicate things, especially with late or delayed complications. So the system for follow-up has to be established with the local medical community, that's for sure. And there's also a large carbon footprint when you consider that you've flown a team of 60 healthcare workers from the United States to some distant country. So you could ask, should short-term missions just be stopped? Well, I think with proper planning and care and working with experienced groups, 
short-term mission trips can have a very positive and lasting impact. I do think that short-term mission groups are a legitimate way to help the global poor. And then exchange participants can be the recipients of the gratitude of the dignified people we serve. I do believe though that long-term change and increases in the quality of care really can't be imported by North Americans and has to come from within the culture of the country. But at the same time, local short-term mission trips can provide patients care in the now, uh, in this moment. The teams I have traveled with and have international staff who recognize the local realities and who are able to tailor the program to meet the needs of the people. We always have associations with local churches and often return to the same area year after year and establish relationships with the communities, the medical communities, the families, the faith communities in the area. In our clinics, patients also receive one-on-one -on -one counseling regarding basic health education, including family planning, personal hygiene, community safety. Actually, in some ways, I, I often think that the family planning and the family counseling that these patients receive might be more helpful actually than their medical consult. The kids get toothbrushes and instructions in basic oral care. As I watch participants who come year after year, I'm always impressed, especially the new people who come, I'm always impressed with their realization that they have received much more from the patients they treat than they have been able to give. So it's not only the patients who receive good things. Our team members come home with a wider worldview and a new appreciation for life, for the life we have in the United States. And I think a deeper concern as world citizens too. Mm -hmm. So I hear kind of a two, two pathways that run in parallel. The short-term missions that change the participants that provide short-term immediate relief to patients and that works in conjunction with the community in which they're, they're gonna practice the short-term missions, along with the parallel pathway of long-term changes with more finances going to the medical systems in those places, in those countries and changing the systems. And right. the reality that that's really hard and takes a long time and, and so, you're changing the perspectives of your participants in the meantime and, and opening up their minds to understanding the deep inequities that run in our world with medical inequities. And I think we change also the perspective of the local medical community in which we work. And I think they see sort of a different side of how medicine and nursing can be performed. It's new perspective for them as well. If I were looking into a short-term mission organization, what would be the criteria by which I would judge that mission? Do you have some ideas of how to help me through that thought process? Well, a couple of things. I would certainly encourage anyone who's interested in short-term missions to carefully evaluate the group that they're planning to travel with and make sure that they have a very good understanding of the area that they're planning to go to work. And if possible, even have local established staff persons on the ground in the country, in the target country. It's pretty difficult to go to a place just cold and expect to be able to do any kind of work that's going to have any long-term positive effect. I know that there have been some stories about groups. I know groups that went to Nepal, kind of a medical tourism kind of group, in fact, and they ended up just recruiting patients along the side, literally recruiting patients alongside of the road, had no contact with the medical authority within the country, 
and left pretty quickly and left the local medical establishment to manage all the complications that arose. That's not the way to do this. That that's, has a very negative effect. And I do think that you have to look carefully at, at the motivation of the group that, or the, the organization that's sending you. Uh, some groups are fanatically attempting to do evangelism. And I would avoid those groups with <laughs> completely. That's, that can be a part of it but it should not be the sole goal or the sole effort of the group. That's really helpful. I appreciate the perspective. I want to turn back to you now and wondered if you could tell me about your journey to become a nurse anesthetist. Well, it's kind of, kind of a long convoluted path. In fact, I, you know, I came of age in the, during the Vietnam war era and was drafted and uh, registered as a one W conscience subjector and was assigned to a hospital in Colorado Springs, Penrose Hospital in Colorado Springs, where I worked for two years and as an orderly in surgery. While I was there, I was trained as a dialysis technician and also as a perfusionist. So I did each of those jobs. There wasn't enough in either, either of those areas for a full-time person, so I did both of them. And I really enjoyed that. Once I completed my assignment there, I came to Heston College and went through their nursing program. So after I completed my nursing training, I worked for a thoracic and cardiovascular surgeon as his perfusionist, office nurse, surgical assistant for about four years. At my time at Penrose, I really didn't even know there were anesthetists. There were only anesthesiologists at that hospital. But at the hospital where I was working as a nurse, I realized that uh, anesthesia was a path that was kind of open to me. And Quite a few of the anesthetists there encouraged me to look into going to anesthesia school. And it did seem like a reasonable sort of next step in my education and in my career. So I did apply to school and was accepted and did a, a two-year hospital-based anesthesia training program, which, by the way, are no longer even available. All the anesthesia programs these days are university-based. That was a long time ago. I think most university programs now are master's degree level with PhD or DMP by 2025. I think actually two thirds of them are already are already there. But it was kind of a long journey and a very, very fulfilling one. In fact, it has been a absolutely fabulous career. And um, I've been so blessed to be able to be a part of it. I agree. I really enjoy practicing anesthesia. It's a really fun career. Indeed. What is your current practice like here in the U.S.? Well, as you've noted at the introduction, I work in a, in a hospital in Salina, Kansas, uh, sort of right in the center of the state. We have two facilities there, a 130-bed community-based hospital, and uh, right across the street, a surgery center with four operating rooms. The surgery center these days is actually busier than the hospital because of the COVID crisis. Um, our hospital has kind of uh, limited the types of surgery they'll, they'll allow ha- to happen because of COVID. And so many of the cases have been transferred across the street to the uh, surgery center. At our hospital, we have, I believe, six anesthesiologists and about 15 CRNAs. So it's quite an independent practice. Everybody kind of does their own room. There's always someone around to help you if you need a little bit of assistance in some way. But it's uh, actually the, the best of both worlds in my, in my view. It's a, it's a great place to work. We have a lot of autonomy, but we also have the ability to call for help as, as it is needed. We've been working there for quite a few years, and it's a good place, not perfect, but we do all kinds of surgery, everything, except we don't do a lot of plastics, but we do pretty much everything else. We have a cardiac program. Uh, we have, do a lot of neurosurgery. 
there's a big OB practice as well. Don't do a lot of pediatrics, I guess. So we do we do some well baby pediatrics, but not a lot. I'm sorry that you don't get to do the best part of anesthesia. <laughs> what is it about your work that brings you meaning and how does it interplay with your faith? I've thought about that a lot, actually. I, you know, when I was a kid, my dad read the Jungle Doctor books to me. Uh, Dr. Paul White was a medical doctor, I think a general practitioner probably, who spent a career in Africa as the Jungle Doctor. And he read those books to me at bedtime for years. We even learned to, to speak to each other with a few words of Swahili over, over time. I'm not sure he really had a desire on his own part to do any traditional mission but in his own way, I think he saw in his own life, his commitment to his church and his work as his mission. And he instilled in me an interest and a desire to have some of those same values. So I've had you know, many opportunities to experience lots of different types of medical missions and have been able to invite others to experience them as well. We always take anesthesia students and nursing students, or we often do, medical students, residents on our trip giving them a chance to be involved in working and serving in a different way than they'll ever experience in the United States in their home hospitals. So just beginning to understand that not everyone lives this privileged life that we have, I think is probably changes how you practice at home and how you see the world. Just as my dad saw his faith fully integrated into his working life, day to day, he, he was above honesty and integrity. He was a very ethically moral person. Those were important values to him. I'm hoping that my values can reflect some of the values that he had as well. What are your future plans? I've been doing anesthesia for a long time. I'm sort of planning to retire one of these days. My malpractice insurance comes due again in June. So I'm sort of thinking about that, making that my target date to retire. But I must say, I will very much miss my daily trips to the hospital. I will very much miss patients uh, trusting me with their lives during their anesthetic. It's a very reassuring and it's, it's a very rewarding kind of uh, practice that I've had, lifestyle that I've had, and I will miss it very much. But, but there is also a time to stop. It is amazing to have patients trust us with their lives. I agree. That is very rewarding. Bill, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. So I thank you for this opportunity to speak with you. It's just been an honor to be invited, and uh, thank you very much for asking. You're welcome. I've enjoyed it. And to our listeners, thank you for joining the Menno HealthCast as I spoke with Bill Swartley. If you're interested in donating or getting involved with MHS, please go to our website at menohealth.org and click on the link in the top right corner or email us at info at We invite you to financially support the mission of Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship to help continue this dialogue about the intersection of faith and health. If you are interested in telling your story, please email me at info at Musical credits go to Paul Schlitz. Editing and production credits to Eugene Stavanis. And I'm your host, Joanne Huntsberger. Please join us again next time.